Um, we uh, are in the book of Daniel, and uh, there have been major themes throughout the book of, actually, before I jump into that, just a quick word. The marriage seminar this Saturday, if I could just implore you and for you to implore others. No, it's a time commitment. Maybe you can make part of it, not all of it, but I want to encourage as many of you to attend. To me, to me, um, this couple that's coming to, to, to lead this, Kevin and Linda Swanson, and I've known them for about 12 years. To me, they are, and I'll say this lightly, they are like, to me, the embodiment of godly, healthy marriage. Like, I don't know of too many other marriages that I could look at and go, that's what I want to be like when I get older. Like, there, and, and I want to encourage as many of you to RSVP and attend it, um, even if you can go for a part of it. I, I, I promise you will not um, regret it. Um, that Daniel, as, as we look into Daniel, as I said, the, the major theme, the major theme throughout this book of has been, has been um, this this truth that God is sovereign, that through the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms and earthly kings, that God is still sovereign, that God is still who He says He is, and that we can lean on Him. The book is written to a group of exiles in the city of Babylon who are wondering at times, is God still who He says He is? Is He still in control? Is He still working out His purposes? And the entire book, as we've seen throughout, and we could only cover first chapters, the entire book is this consistent theme that says God is still holy. God is still God. God is still God. And as we end this series, we uh, come to maybe the most famous story in the book of Daniel. How many of you have never heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Can you raise your hand? And I'm being serious. I'm not being, anybody? Anybody? Really? Okay. There's two people that raise their hands in the back. I, I, I was hoping actually that this would be a new story for, for, for some people because, because the truth and the, uh, the, the reality is it's actually not a good thing that it's familiar. It's actually not a good thing that it is familiar. It is actually a bad thing that it is familiar. And some of you already know what I'm talking about because this is how this story has typically been told and maybe preached and taught in churches. And maybe this is the reason why some of you walked away from the church or faith and some of you are struggling right now because the way that this story is typically told is this. If you have faith like Daniel, if you're courageous like Daniel, if you trust God like Daniel, then God will shut the mouths of the lions. Then God will, 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 will help you so that you will arise from the lion's den without a scratch. You, you'll, you'll walk away unharmed. That is not only untrue, it's not even consistent with the life and message of Jesus. Hello, somebody. Anybody awake this morning? That is dangerous to read this story that way because, hello, somebody. Jesus was more trusting of God than Daniel. Jesus was more obedient to God than Daniel. Jesus was more faithful to God than Daniel. And I have news for you. He did not walk away unharmed. He did not walk away without a, with, with no scratches. He did not. He had to die before there would be resurrection. See, I, 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 I'm afraid that there might be some of us sitting here this morning who have this perspective of the Christian life that says, if I could be like Daniel, then I can. And the reality is the life and message of Jesus says, that's not true. If, they, if you take this story or any other story in the Bible and you start out by going, the moral of the story is, then you miss the entire point of the Bible. Come on, is anybody with me this morning? You completely miss out on what God wants to speak to us about. Put it another way, you cannot, I cannot read the Bible moralistically. The Bible is not, hello, about you. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is not, here's what we need to do. The Bible is about, here's what Christ has done. Oh, 
I'm telling you, there's a reason why some of us are sitting here this morning and we're struggling with our faith and we're struggling with God because deep, deep down somewhere is this tiny voice or message that we've been told, we've been led to believe that if you do X, Y, and Z and live like Daniel and the moral of the story is, then God will. And the reality is, it's not what scripture or the Christian life is about. Um, book of Daniel, as we'll get into it's about people of God who found themselves in, 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 in exile. And, and, and they're asking the question, how do I live my life? And again, this theme is hovered throughout the first six chapters. How do I live my life in faithful obedience in a culture that says, there are many gods when I believe in the one true God? How do I live my life in faithful obedience when people say, you could choose to believe what you believe because it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you think it's true. When you anchor yourself... It, and what scripture says, how, how do I live my life in faithful obedience to that? And Daniel chapter 6, as we close this, gets to the heart of that. Uh, one real quick thing before I move on. Um, um, the greatest test for Daniel, as we'll see, comes at the very tail end of his life. He's pushing 80. I don't know about some of you, but maybe some of us sit here and we go, you know, the greatest test and temptation come at the front end of our lives. And, and as we get older... It maybe there's, we just run out of things to be tempted about. Does anybody actually believe that? If you're in your 20s and 30s, I know. Some of you do. You go, this is where it's going to, this is like the hardest right now, 20s and 30s. Because when I get older, I'll run out of, here's Daniel, and he faces the greatest test of his life at the end of his life. Not at the front end. I need you to let this sink in. Here's Daniel, who's lived faithfully all of his life. And at the tail end of his life comes the greatest test of his entire life. Where he has to choose loyalty to God over obedience to the state. What's at stake? His life. Faith. It's not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. I'm going to say that again. We've seen this throughout. Faith is not obeying in spite of evidence. It's obeying in spite of consequences. And here's Daniel who says, I am willing to face the consequences for obedience to my God. Can I ask you a question before we move on? Is there anything you're willing to die for? Is there anything you're willing to die for? Because my theory is, unless you're not willing to die for something, we'll never truly live. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. As I said last week, I have one week and 40-some minutes, if I go fast enough, to cover, like, the entire chapter. And you know how your pastor preaches. I could do four weeks on one chapter, but I'm going to do one. So you're going to sit there and go, but what about this? What about that? What about that? Yes, there are a lot of whatabouts, but I'm just going to go plow through and have you study this on your own. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius. Darius is now the king. And of course, if you were here last week, Darius and the Middle Persian Empire has defeated Babylon. Darius appoints 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, verse 2, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Loss of what? Most likely taxation or territory, and we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 3, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators that the satraps, by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. In other words, Daniel is essentially become a de facto prime minister of the Medo Persian Empire, verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps try to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They couldn't find, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Here are three qualities that separate and distinguish Daniel that I want to just quickly talk about. One, Daniel was, it says, incorruptible, or he was a person of an 
integrity. So apparently something's never changed. Tell me if this sounds familiar. A person gets into high office and he uses and abuses the high office to line his own pockets. Does this sound familiar? Okay. Something's never changed. So apparently it was common for officials back then to overcharge and overtax the constituents, okay, and underpay the king, thereby pocketing the difference, thereby causing the king to suffer loss. And again, today is no different. How many times do we need to hear news about corruption against some officials? Hello, somebody. We live in Chicago. Did I just say that out loud? Okay, anyway. And Daniel, the Bible says, was incorruptible. Another part of Daniel's incorruptibility, actually, that really struck me as I studied it was, was his, unwill, his, his willingness to be a, a, a straight shooter. How many times have we seen throughout the first six chapters Daniel being willing to speak the truth regardless of the cost? Do you remember? Here's the thing. The officials in front of the king are nice and pleasant and compliant. And then behind the king's back, they take advantage of him. Here's Daniel, a man of integrity, who is willing to speak hard truth in front of the king, even if it costs him his life, and behind the king's back, he fends for the king's rights. Do you know what integrity is? Integrity is when you're willing to speak truth, hard truth, to someone's face, but then when others slander, gossip, speak ill of them, you actually defend that person. You know what we do? We do the exact opposite. We're just like the officials. We're unwilling to speak hard truth in front of people and then behind their spiritually mature people, emotionally healthy people don't gossip. They don't slander. They don't do the whole, I'm not going to say anything in front of your face, but behind your back say all kinds of things. I'm laughing because last night I'm talking to my wife in the kitchen, we're cooking, and out of nowhere, we're talking about some things, out of nowhere, my wife says to me, sometimes I hear your phone conversations with people, Peter, and I don't think you're godly. She's like, the way you talk about other people is ugly. Yes, I am married to that person, okay? You all, need to, you all need people like that in your life. Can I get an amen? She stopped me dead in my tracks, okay? I was cutting kimchi or something. I was like, what the heck is going on here? What? What? My wife just casually says, Peter Hong, you're a pastor. Peter Hong, you're a leader. Be careful how you talk about people. And I had nothing to say. Because I'm guilty of that. How about you? How are you doing? How am I doing? Come on, guys. Yes, I'm preaching myself this morning. How many of us, how many of us are unwilling to speak hard truth in front of people? How many of us are we like Daniel? We speak our truth in front of people, and then, and then we actually, when other people say stuff about them, we defend them and say, no, 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 no. Pray for your pastor, man, because I struggle with this. I struggle with this. Daniel wasn't man of integrity. Secondly, Daniel was not negligent. In other words, he was hardworking. You could be honest or a person of integrity, be but undisciplined, right? But the thing is, not only was Daniel honest, but he worked extremely hard. Daniel apparently was like the first person to arrive and last person to leave. Third quality about Daniel, Daniel was exceptional, or he was effective. This is possible to be honest and not hardworking, but it's possible to be hardworking but not very effective, right? I love what one commentator said. He said, when Daniel took up any task, he always did it with such excellence that everyone around him fell into rank and they followed him and there did their best. I rarely use sports analogy, but I'm going to use one. Daniel literally elevated everybody else's game around him. 
And what a witness. So the application is pretty simple. I'm just going to say it and then I need to move on. Whatever it is that God has for you to do, me to do, do people say this about you? Do they go, she is exceptional at what she does. Oh my gosh. Not only that, she is hardworking. Hardest worker in our company. The hardest worker that we know. Not only that, but man, she is a person of impeccable integrity. I have never literally heard her say a bad word about anybody. Matter of fact, whenever you try to bring up somebody bad about somebody, she's the first person to go, inappropriate, not going to go there. I don't know. Is our life remarkably different like that? Is your life remarkably different like that? Can, can people, do you, do you know why this struck me like, like a ton of bricks? So I'm preparing for Easter, right? And when I pray for, pray, pray for Easter, I, I always read the, the first uh, the few chapters in the book of Acts to, 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 to see what, what, what it was like in the early days. And did you know, if you, and go home and do this, Christians in the early church didn't go out into the streets and grab people and go, hey, you need to know about Jesus. They didn't do that. The opposite was true. Do you know what happened? Every time in the book of Acts, listen to this, every sermon in the early accounts of the spread of the gospel where every Christian testified to their faith, here is how it happened in every case, they're just simply responding to questions because people outside the faith looked at what happened to people inside the church and said, what happened to you? Why are you so different? There is no account. Read the book of Acts of Christians just randomly going out to the street going, I got to tell you about Jesus. Every point is responding to questions. People are going, something happened to you that I've never seen. What is it? It's incredible to me. Is that happening to you? Is that happening to me? Now, you can't, and before I go on, you, you, can't, you can't help but notice the parallel between Daniel and the officials, right? Because Daniel, there's a lot of hostility from the officials, but I want you to notice that hostility actually increases when they find out about his character. Let me say that again. The hostility towards Daniel actually intensifies when they find out about his character. The initial reason for the hostility, I think straight up professional jealousy. How many of you guys have ever been the object of professional jealousy in your workplace? Anybody? People just don't like some people getting a little bit too much credit, a little too much glory, a little, you know, and so, so there's professional jealousy, especially in hard, driving, ambitious environments. That, that, I think, explains some of the initial hostility. But what explains the increase in their hostility? Think about this with me. They probably wouldn't have wasted time trying to dig up dirt on Daniel unless they assumed that Daniel was just like They probably wouldn't have wasted any time unless they figured that Daniel was just like them. See, one of the natural ways the Bible says that our sinful hearts justifies our sin is to do this. Everybody's doing it, so it's okay. If you're a liar, you'll never trust what anybody else says to you. If you're a thief, you'll think everybody is stealing from you. Or if you're like Noah, my little one, last night she's playing, he's playing checkers with, with Sophie. And he's about to go get a break. And Noah says, don't cheat, Sophie. Why? Because he's a little cheater. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. Do you justify sin in your own life? I go, it's okay if I do this. Why? Because everybody does it. See, here's the thing. I, I got to be gentle and yet firm. That's why when you get around an incorruptible, honest, integrity, godly person, you don't feel comfortable. You hate it. When you're morally unclean, you don't like being around morally clean people. When you are, listen, corrupt, 
corrupted. You don't like being around incorruptible people. The Apostle John said this, John 3.20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So here's my question for you. Here's my question for you and me. Do you and I have this Daniel effect on people? You could be the best Christian, kind, gentle, respectful. You could be a Daniel, but you'll always get some pushback if you're walking in the light. Can I ask you something? Come on, guys. When is the last time you got pushback simply because you were just walking in the way of Jesus? Hmm? Verse 5, finally these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this Daniel unless it's something to do with the God, law of his God. So these administrators, each chaps, went as a group and said to the king, may the king Darius live forever. Apparently they loved it when people said stuff like that to them. Because the royal administrator, perfects and satraps and advisors and governors, we've all agreed. No, not all of them have agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone appraised to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Again, guys, think what? Think with me. Think with me. Why did they come up with this plan and think this is foolproof? We're going to get him through this. If Daniel's prayer life had been sporadic, infrequent, random, they would have never hatched this plan. Come on, come on, come on. The only reason why they went, this is fail-proof, this is going to work, is because Daniel's prayer life, hello somebody, was consistent, faithful. Okay, so I have a question. Would it make any remarkable, distinguishable difference in your life and my life if prayer was banned for 30 days in this country? If prayer was banned and illegal in this country, what are the chances that you'd get busted? Because it's so frequent, regular, intentional. I know I'm preaching to the choir, so I'm just going to say the following and then move on. Our society, our culture is not a mess because there are no prayers in schools. Hello, somebody. Our culture is a mess because there are no prayer in churches. I think the whole prayer in schools is just a big diversion of the fact that we have no prayer in churches, saints. I wouldn't be caught guilty if prayer was banned for 30 days. I can tell you that. How about you? Verse 8. Peter, is the whole sermon going to be like this? Yes. Verse 8. Now your majesty. Issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot. No, I have good news. You need to hang on to the end because there's gospel. There's always gospel. Amen? Amen. So you need to hang on to the very end. But it's got to hurt first though. Okay. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when, huh? <laughs> when Daniel heard that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? City of God. And this is not nostalgia. This is not a Jewish man going, no, I miss home. Jerusalem is the embodiment representative of what? The presence of God. And the presence and symbol of God's covenant faithfulness and love with his people. So three times a day it says he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Here's what I see Daniel doing. I'm using my imagination. He opens the window and what is he doing? 
In his prayers, he is looking towards the very city that is representative of the presence and love of God. Why is Daniel doing this? This is the key to his life. It's because Daniel, like you and me, needed to be reminded on a daily basis who he is, whose he is, and what he is about. Every day, living in Babylon, Daniel needs to be reminded, this is who I am. This is whose I am. And this is what I am about. And in order for that to wash over him, three times a day, he looks towards and gazes upon the face of God. I'm reminded of the psalmist who wrote Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this is, what, this is only what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You want to know the secret to Daniel? And I wish I could spend two, three weeks on this. It's right here, gazing upon the face of God and saying, I know who I am, I know whose I am, and I know what I'm about. Do you know who else did this? Jesus. See Jesus multiple times throughout the day, getting away. What's he doing? It's his opening windows to Jerusalem and on his knees. So I am like super, super, super getting into Richard Rohr these days. Some of you know who he is. And I'm super, super, super getting into this concept of true self versus false self. And how he talks about how when we, the Bible says we are a new creation. He's talking about our true self, who we are as, as, as the children of God. Who we are in terms of who God created us to be. Who we are in terms of the plan and purpose that God has for us. And the whole life's journey is about shedding our false self. The thing, the old man, the old self, the Bible tells us. That thing that died with Christ's death and resurrection. But the thing that still lingers within us. And I've been really struck as I go through this Lent by the temptation of Jesus. Because the temptation of Jesus, you guys, you see the three temptations are the test in Luke 4 that gets to the heart of why you and I are tempted to live into our false selves every single day. Here's the first temptation. Satan comes to Jesus and says what? Turn the stones into bread. You know what the first temptation is to live into your false self? It's this. You are what you do. How many of you believe this this morning? How many of you sit here this morning and actually believe this lie that says you are what you do? That's your identity. Turn that stone into bread. You know what you do. Are you productive? Are you achieving? How much can people count on you? Second temptation is what? Second temptation is what? Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Here's the second temptation. You are what you have. You are the sum total of what you have. How much money is in your bank? How many degrees do you have that then for your name? Hear what you have. What's the third temptation? Go up to the top of the temple and fall, and the angels will catch you, and all the people will say, he is the Messiah. Third temptation, you are what other people say you are. You are what you do. You are what you have. You are what other people say you are. And 99.9% .9 of us in this room this morning believe these lies. Do you remember how Jesus overcame them? Because <laughs> right before the temptation, he gets baptized into the Jordan, he comes out and hears the voice of God saying what? You are my beloved son. You and I are walking around, living into our false selves, saying to ourselves, I'm what I do, I'm what I have, I'm what other people say I am. Some of you, frankly, this morning are completely in despair, not just discouraged, despair, because you have believed this lie and you're living in your false self and you cannot hear the voice of your Heavenly Father saying to you, who are you? Who are you, Peter? God, I'm what I, no, I'm not what I do. Who are you, Peter? I'm what I, no. who are you, Peter? I'm what other people say I, who are you, Peter? 
One thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and hear the voice of my heavenly Father telling me, you are my son. Do you know what Daniel means literally, the name? God is my judge. Can it get any more beautiful? God is my judge. Where's your validation come from, Daniel? God is my judge. Where's your affirmation come from, Daniel? God is my judge. Where do you get your word from, Daniel? God is my judge. And we wonder why this life seems elusive to us. Verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Hey, do you not publish the decree during the next 30 days that anyone who prays to any god or human except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And they said to the king, Daniel, though, who is one of the exiles, by the way, can you just, you could just hear them. You just hear them. Daniel, who is one of your exiles, that second class citizen, that Jew, that slave, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you've put it in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly wise. Say it with me. This is crazy. When the king heard this, he is, ah, oh, ah. Oh. Why? We'll get to that. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king Darius and said, Don't remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues cannot be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Why is Darius, a pagan king, so upset? Because he loves Daniel. Why does he love Daniel? Because he has seen the beauty of his life. A pagan king has seen the beauty of this man's life. Can I ask you something? Are there Darius's in your life? People who don't even know God. Who have such love and respect for you because they've seen in you a life of wisdom, of beauty, of character, and of love. <laughs> but Daniel is also about to lose his life, though. For what? Everybody, can you pay attention for a second? He's about to lose his life for his open commitment to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is about to lose his life, listen, because he is unwilling to be secretive about his commitment to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Daniel, if you are open about your faith, if you let it be known that you are a committed follower of Jesus, even if you and I do that in the most loving, gentle, kind, respectful way, there will be some pushback coming towards you. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Words of Jesus. If you're of the world, the world will love you as its own. No servant is greater than his master. If they hated me, they will what? Hate you also. So I got to ask a question. Won't dwell on it. How many of us here this morning are secretive about our faith? No, 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 but I don't want to be that Christian. Nobody says you have to be that Christian. Nobody says you have to be the Bible or something. No, no, nobody said that. But how many of us are secretive about our faith? 
Nobody in our neighborhood, our schools, our workplaces knows that we are a committed follower of Jesus. To which some of us go, no, 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 but Peter, Peter, but, 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 but if I was, then I might, I might what? You might what? Not get the promotion? You might what? Lose your job? You might what? Lose the social circle? I'm going to say it again. Faith is not about believing in spite of evidence. Say it with me. Faith is about obeying in spite of Last time I checked, the guy who said, um, if one of you are Christian, let him deny himself, let him carry this, and let him follow me. If you and I are never misunderstood, if you and I never, ever offend anybody, if we are never persecuted, could it be because there's nothing remarkable, nothing distinguishable about our lives or because we lack the courage to be open about our commitment to Jesus? Can Chicago be transformed by the gospel? Absolutely. How? When you and I live lives of integrity, beauty, and wisdom, and when we are courageous enough to step out and be open about our faith. You know what Daniel is doing here, you guys? And give me like two minutes on this before we finish the last few verses. Daniel is basically living out Jeremiah 29. We began this journey Jeremiah 29, God says to the Jews who have huddled outside the city of Babylon, unwilling to uh, move into the city, God says via Jeremiah to the God's people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to move into the city. I want you to increase there. I want you to work for its prosperity and its shalom. I want you to do all this without ever compromising your convictions and your faith. And here is Daniel doing just that. He has moved into the city. Daniel, for crying out loud, you guys, is a governor government official working for the entire city's good, and he's doing it without ever losing his distinctiveness as a follower of Jesus. Real quick, two things about kingdom work in Daniel that I don't have time to expound, but I just want to hit and go, and that is what we do and where we do it. Number one, what we do, what we do from Daniel. I just got to say this real quick. I cannot believe that still this day we have people in the church, maybe not our church, in the church who say dumb things like this. If you really want to be used by the Lord, you have to be a pastor and a missionary. And I'm here to say loud and clear this morning, I am a pastor, and I am here to say this morning that it is more important that Christian teachers, Christian doctors, Christian nurses, Christian janitors, Christian bartenders, Christian artists, Christian everybody needs to live their kingdom assignment in their sphere. Can I get an amen? Daniel could have been an amazing prophet. He could have been an amazing priest. Instead, he chose a secular vocation. And it is through that that God uses him. Oh my gosh. You, new community. You and your Monday through Friday. You have an opportunity to be a kingdom witness to people and a situation that I will never see in my lifetime. Secondly, where of the kingdom assignment? When the Bible says work for the city, shalom, it's flourishing. It's assuming that you and I would consider going into places that are broken, places that are disintegrating, places that are experiencing devastation. Can I ask you a question? How do you decide where you live and where you work? Does part of the equation go, God, what is your kingdom assignment for me and how can I make the greatest impact for good? I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I want to live in places where the schools are best. I want to live in places where streets are safe. I want to live in places where parks are nice. I want to live in all those places. But I have to ask this question. If Jesus was about to come down to earth and he had this conversation with his father, God the Father says, I have a mission for you. Jesus says, where am I going? He says, is it safe? Are the people nice? I don't think he would have come. I think he might have said, I don't want to go. Can part of your reasoning, church, for those of you that are at that life stage where you are making decisions about where you live and where you work, can a part of that equation about where you live actually be the filter of where can I do the most good? What about where you work? What about where you work? 
Do you know how many Christians I talk to on a regular basis who bypass jobs? Why? It doesn't pay well. The perks are not very nice and it's not very much acclaim. And I want to go, what if as a kingdom person, you said my priority is not how much does it pay, does it have perks, and what does it afford me, but where can I make the greatest kingdom impact? When and where do Christians start going, where I live and where I work is about kingdom assignment and what I want, not what I want. Verse 17. Yo, I'm getting excited right here. Sorry, I've been struggling with the bad cold all week. Verse 17. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation would not be changed. Everybody, look up here. Centuries later, centuries later. And so I'm getting excited. Centuries later. Another stone was brought and covered the mouth of the cave. You better talk about it. Centuries later, they said about another, Daniel, well, he's finished. He's not coming out. He's done. Centuries later, I keep reading. <gasps> the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him. He couldn't sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. Who is this angel? Could it be the same angel that showed up in Daniel 3 that walked into the fire furnace with Daniel's three friends? And by the way, did you ever wonder, why go into the lion's den? Just like, why go into the fiery fireplace? Why not just rescue Daniel without having to go into the lion's den? You know, and I know. The promise is never, you will not go through the waters. The promise is, I will be what? With you when you go through the waters. Promise is not, you'll never go through the fire. Promise is what? I will be with you. Oh, yeah, and there's something more. Oh, man, this is good news to some of you. And you'll walk out here with an explosion of joy. They have not heard me because I, found innocent, I was found innocent in sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted his God, to which we go, aha, there it is. Trust God and no wound. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. Don't do that to the Bible. That's why some of you are disillusioned right now. Then the king Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the people, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and his love endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. This dude is preaching right here. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Here's the reason why you cannot read the story moralistically. Because you'll say, live like Daniel and God will deliver you from the lions then. Trust God and God will never let anything happen to you. But what if you trust God and you get cancer? What if you trust God and you go through financial hardship? What if you trust God and they break up with you? What if you trust God, just like Daniel did, and you not only get scratches, you get deep wounds? You cannot read the story moralistically because it will not just not help you, it will disillusion you. So how are we supposed to read the story? Here's how. One, it points to the salvation that is to come in the future. And two, it points to salvation that happened for us in the past. And if you get these two, hey, not only will you understand this story, but you could face anything in life. Do you want that? I want that. What do I mean? Points of salvation we have in the future. The miracles in the Bible, as someone has said, are never intended to be displays, naked displays of power. 
There are better ways to display. You ever see an apostle prophet going, everybody, you want to see some power? Watch, watch that mountain. Watch that volcano. You never see anybody doing that. Why? Why? Because miracles in the Bible are not just naked displays of power, you guys. There are better ways of displacing naked power than feeding the hungry or touching lepers, healing the blind, and setting the oppressed free. The miracles in the Bible are not very good if you think of it as naked power because they're not. The miracles in the Bible, someone said, point to the gospel. They point to salvation. What do I mean? The miracles in the Bible, I think C.S. Lewis said this, are not suspensions of the natural order, but they're restorations of the natural order. Oh. The miracles of Jesus, you guys, wasn't for Jesus to go, you want to see? You want to see that I'm God? The miracles in the Bible was for Jesus to go, this is what God intended all along, and this is what I'm going to do to restore and renew everything. The miracles in the Bible, feeding the hungry, was Jesus saying, there will be a day when there will be no more hunger. Hello, somebody. When he heals the sick, he says, there's going to come a day when there's no more sickness or death. What about the lion's Peter? How does that? Here's how. Psalm 91, 13, with that lens, it says, you will tread on the lion, and this is a messianic psalm, and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Did you know that in the Old Testament, the strength and power of lions represented two things? One, it expressed the brokenness and the devastation and the chaos of the universe. So you know what happened in the miracle of the taming of the lions? We have in the taming of the lions, Jesus saying, there will come a time when all the chaos and devastation and destruction of the universe will be restored. It'll all be restored. God's salvation, as we say in this church over and over and over again, is not just forgiveness of sins and paradise and the afterlife. God is going to rehab, restore, and renew this creation, and one day we will rule with him forever. Is that good news to anybody? That is the good news of the gospel. That's why in Isaiah 11, some of you know this, another messianic prophecy, it says the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The taming of the lions is a foretaste of the full restoration and renewal that is coming when God fully establishes his kingdom on earth. Our bodies will finally work right. Is that good news to anybody? Our bodies will finally, this is good news if you ever lost a loved one through disease and sickness. Creation will finally work right. Our world will finally work right. A world where there'll be no more evil, no more disease, no more death. And those of us who've experienced sorrow and grief because our bodies don't work right or a loved one that we love, their bodies didn't work right, this salvation that is to come says one day God will restore and renew everything. Is that good news to anybody? And what you go, if you're thinking with me, how do we know that's going to happen, Peter? How do we know? How do you know because of the salvation that was done for us in the past? What do I mean? Do you remember Jesus cries out in Psalm? 21. Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know that's directly out of Psalm 22 where the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Do you know what that means? The lions don't just represent chaos, destruction, devastation of the universe. The lions also represented the justice of God. And we have Jesus. We have Jesus on the cross. As we'll celebrate in three weeks. We have Jesus, the real Daniel, the ultimate Daniel, receiving the justice of God for every evil, every sin, every death, every sickness. We have Jesus, the Son of God, the real Daniel, receiving the justice of God. We have the real Daniel, Jesus, going into the real dying den so that we would never have to. And listen to this. See, so you can come on up. 
don't miss this. If you, if you literally didn't pay attention to the whole thing, just pay attention to this. This story is here to remind us that because the real Daniel went into the real lion's den, no matter what lions we face in our lives, we can go through it with poise and confidence. Can I get an amen? I'm going to say that again. Because the real Daniel experienced the real lion's den, no matter what little lions, and we will face them in our lives on a daily basis, we can go through them with confidence. Here's what I mean. The only reason that I can experience and face disease and death in my life is knowing that Jesus took the ultimate disease and death in my life for me. The only reason I can endure and persevere when I face financial hardship and debt is knowing that Jesus paid the ultimate debt for me. The only reason that I can deal with loneliness in my life is knowing that Jesus Christ was forsaken on the cross so that I would never be forsaken. Because Jesus, the real Daniel, went into the real lion's den. No matter what little lions may come my way in my life, I can face it with poise. Church, is this good news to anybody? I began this by saying earlier, Daniel's name literally means Daniel, God is my judge. God is my judge. You'll never tame the lions in your life unless you let God be the untamed lion in your life. You'll never tame the lions in your life unless you let God be the untamed lion in your life. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do I do that? How do we do that in a world that says, live into your false self. You are what you do. You're what you have. You're what other people say about you. Imagine what Daniel's life must have looked like if he believed the lie that said, I am what I do, I'm what I have, and I am what other people say I am. How does Daniel endure? He fixes his eyes towards you soon. And maybe for you and me this morning, it's this, it's this, it's this. This is the reason why I end my sermons the way I do. It's this, it's this, it's this. It's the reason why I point to the cross every Sunday, hoping that somebody, somebody out there will realize that Daniel looking towards Jerusalem is you and me looking towards the cross. It's you and me looking to the cross three times a day, five times a day, every other minute for crying out loud. It's looking to the cross and reminding ourselves, this tells me who I am, this tells me whose I am, and this tells me what I'm about. God is my judge. God is my judge. Pray with me.